one of the things that MDMA does as an empathogen is open our hearts, make us feel safe and very trusting. So it's a very relational experience. And if someone is stuck in all of the downstream consequences of experiencing a traumatic event, the sense of connection and relation to themselves and the therapist that they're working with really is an outstanding opportunity for processing, for meaning making, and for releasing whatever is stuck in the nervous system. Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin. This is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm speaking with Joe Flanders and Andrew Rose, two leaders in the field of psychedelic therapy and research. Joe is a licensed psychologist who founded Mindspace Wellbeing in Montreal, Canada, where he offers mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. He's also vice president of psychology at Numinous Wellness, a multidisciplinary healthcare company that's advancing research around psychedelic-assisted therapies. Andrew is a certified mindfulness teacher and educator who's focused his work on psychedelics and harm reduction. He teaches with an organization called Fluence, which focuses on training clinicians and therapists in psychedelic therapy. I've been interested for quite a while in the topic of psychedelic therapy and specifically how it relates to trauma treatment. I also want to interview Joe and Andrew because they're both well-trained practitioners in this field and they're also skilled mindfulness teachers. So they have a very unique perspective about where things are and where they're headed. In our conversation, we discuss the current moment that we're in around psychedelic research and treatment and implications for clinical work, proposed mechanisms of psychedelic therapy and how they relate to trauma, conditions that support healing and transformation in psychedelic therapy, including mindfulness and preparatory work, the arc of sessions in psychedelic treatment and the role of the window of tolerance, working with stuckness in psychedelic therapy, and also the relationship between mindful awareness, traumatic activation, and psychedelics. This was a really engaging conversation that left me very excited with where the field is and also a lot of curiosity about where it's headed, specifically around the treatment of trauma and PTSD specifically. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. And without further delay, here's Joe Flanders and Andrew Rose. Well, I'm here with Joe Flanders and Andrew Rose. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. Cool to be here. Yeah, great. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. We were just talking offline. So it was probably three and a half years ago that I've been waiting to have this conversation with you both. So you invited me to Montreal with a couple of colleagues. You put on a great workshop around mindfulness and trauma. You're both mindfulness teachers. You do a lot of work in Montreal and Canada generally. And Andrew, you, I think halfway through the weekend... Uh, you raised this question around psychedelics, mindfulness, and trauma, and it just raised a lot of energy in the room. People had a lot of opinions. I did. So I've been waiting to have you both, given the work that you've been doing, um, to have this conversation. So I'm really happy you're here, and I've been looking forward to this. And as a way to start, just for people that don't know your work and to situate yourself, I'm wondering if you could just spend you know, a minute or two each just letting people know, here's where I spend my time. And I know you have a big body of work that you've both done. So would you mind just letting us know who you are? Go ahead, Andrew. Sure. Yeah. So I'm a psychedelic 
harm reduction and integration coach and a mindfulness teacher based in Montreal. Joe and I worked together for a long time at Mindspace where we established the psychedelic harm reduction and integration program. I also have a a long background studying Buddhism, various uh, traditions, and really as a as a psychedelic practitioner and and psychonaut, and that led to Joe and I, you know, working together more and more, not just in the clinical mindfulness space, where Joe is also a mentor of mine, following sort of my, my Buddhist orientation into mindfulness, and Joe's sort of clinical training was really uh, formative for me as well. Yeah, and then we started exploring psychedelics together in terms of the mental health. And now I currently uh, work with an organization called Fluence in, in the US that does a lot of training for clinicians and therapists who are interested in getting training around psychedelic therapy and psychedelic integration. Oh, and I also co-run a community organization called Plant Parenthood, which is... Um, That's great, Plant Plant Parenthood. Yeah, it runs psychedelic integration circles for parents and, and folks that are interested in the intersection of uh, intentional therapeutic use of psychedelics and, and family. So I'm Joe Flanders. I'm a psychologist and mindfulness teacher. I founded a clinic in Montreal called Mindspace. And it's kind of a combination of a traditional psychotherapy center where right now we're 42 therapists, mostly psychologists doing a range of, you know, psychotherapeutic services, a lot of mindfulness-based interventions, emotion-focused therapy, that kind of stuff, CBT, ACT. I'm also on a faculty at the Center for Mindfulness Studies in Toronto, which is a, basically, a some people might know, an organization where people go to get trained and certified to teach MBSR and MBCT. And so I do some training with them. And Andrew mentioned me mentoring him a little bit in the mindfulness space as he transitioned from a more traditional kind of context into the mindfulness lineage. And I could say the same about his introducing me as an adult anyway to a psychedelic practice. And so I'm very grateful to him for that. Going back a few years now, Andrew and I actually go back many years. So it's been cool for him and I to kind of reconnect over the years in various uh, contexts. So yeah, my meditation practice goes back many years and my teaching practice about 10 years now. But in about a year ago, I closed the deal to have Mindspace acquired by a psychedelic company in Vancouver called Numinous. And since January, I've been working as a VP, so VP psychology. And my role there is basically to help uh, set up and design psychedelic programs in the all the Numinous locations, eventually across the continent at least. And uh, with a particular focus on like therapist training and uh, engagement. So that's, that's what's uh, keeping me busy. And I guess I'll just say what's been super interesting is um, I found myself just fascinated and very passionate about the, the rise of the sort of mindfulness movement in the 2000s and really uh, sort of felt that at least here in Montreal started Mindspace as the wave really kind of began to crest and uh, mindfulness became a relatively mainstream offering to the public for a variety of reasons. Um, and I just feel like we're in the exact same place now with psychedelics where we were maybe 10, 15 years ago with mindfulness. And so it's just been really cool to see it from this vantage point. And I'm incredibly passionate about it. And I find this really is a kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity to be a part of a major paradigm shift in the healthcare system and to bring really new and innovative and powerful new um, treatments for people that are suffering. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been finding myself disoriented at times 
from my own path and clinical training and then a lot of time in mindfulness, I have a certain map about how I'd say people, I'd say systems change, how we transform. And when I've seen the research in the last couple of years around, say, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, around trauma, it challenges my frame Hmm. around what's possible. And so I love that you're saying that. And this is why, I mean, I'll be a learner in this conversation in many ways, uh, because I'm just really curious what's happening in the field. I have a sense of it, but you're both really at the forefront, which is why this is so exciting. How does it challenge your frame? Well, when I hear people having such massive openings around and deep integrative experiences around their trauma that they've been working years inside of, I'd say, traditional psychotherapeutic approaches, whether it's cognitive behavioral or otherwise, to have the level of breakthrough that seems to be sustaining them. But like in a longer term way, this wasn't just a one-off opening. This was a really sustained change in terms of their health, their relationships. That's the frame where I'm like, is it possible to have that level of opening so quickly? And then what supports do we need to actually shore Mm. that up? Mm. You know, so that's what I wanted to talk to you both about is what's integrative, what's not. It sounds like we'll reference a podcast that you both did. It sounds like where you took a deep dive around this and Joe, you know, great podcast. So we can reference that. But for people that are newer to this Mm -hmm. conversation, what data points would you like to lay out for the next couple minutes mm. so that we could have some scaffolding to work with? So if I might, you know, say my grandma, my grandma listens to my podcast and she's like, what's, <laughs> still, what's still aside then? What's, can you, can you give us, you probably know, what would be the important data points here, do you think, or definitions for people to know? Well, Andrew, you want to take us through the the drugs in the in the medicine cabinet Two hours here? later. Well, I mean, you <laughs> joke, but I like I that's a it's a decent place to start, at, at least in terms of a frame or a reference and thinking about substances. I I think like what I would what I would start with is really the the kind of the basic principles of this of this paradigm shift that Joe was alluding to, which is that we're not just doing pharmacological or, or a, an intervention with a substance or a medicine or a drug, um, although that is that is part of what's happening in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy or therapeutic use of psychedelics. But we're also not just doing therapy. We're also not just doing sort of psychotherapy or CT or whatever you want to, whatever modality you would want to sort of allude to. You really, you're combining these two worlds. So medical intervention, psychiatry, psychology, psychotherapy, they're all kind of coming together in this, in this intervention. And I think like that's, that's kind of the, the simplest way to just start to lay it out. And then in terms of the actual substances, I mean, it's easy to get overwhelmed if someone is sort of like new to the space and they hear about folks going on ayahuasca retreats or smoking 5-MeO-DMT, you know, like that they can, it can, can sound really either esoteric or like highly med- or highly medical or technical. Yeah. But I, I think the most useful way to sort of approach it would be to say that, look, there's a whole class of substances out here. There's a whole set of substances that are derived from plants, that are derived from fungi, that are synthesized, that have a certain kind of effect that for various political reasons, like had been forgotten for a long time at least in a Western sort of like medical context, you know, of course, there's like a lot of these substances have been used uh, ceremonially and in various indigenous traditions for, you know, potentially thousands of years. But yeah, so I I just, just putting aside this idea that there's there, it's some weird street drug, I think is really one of the first things I would want to say is that like, 
these are substances that can be really interesting if used sort of safely and effectively and combined with, crucially, combined with some kind of psychotherapy that actually involves a lot of preparation and integration as well, right? So that's the, that's the first thing you, you said previously is like, how can this thing happen so like so quickly? It challenges your frame. And, and that was maybe one of the first bulbs that went off, which is like, hold on a second. Yes, it happens quickly, but there's a lot that goes into setting up that that sudden transformative experience in terms ah, of right. preparation in this work, mm-hmm. right? I'm not to say nothing of the integration that follows. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. I would just add a couple things there. I like to talk about the definition of psychedelics. So like mm. psychedelic comes from, I believe it's Greek. And if you just take the the original sort of Greek building blocks, it basically means mind manifesting. So there's a variety of different compounds and basically it it sort of shows us or exposes us to the inner workings of our mind and it, and it gives us access that we wouldn't have in ordinary state of consciousness. And from there, we sometimes talk about um, different types of psychedelics. So um, there are the classical psychedelics, which people will be familiar with. They've heard about LSD, psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, DMT, which is uh, one of the active ingredients in ayahuasca. What else belongs in that category? Um, mescaline, which is... Mescaline, thank you. Yeah, go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, no, I think that would, that would probably sort of cover them and then going into... Yeah, and then there are these other subtypes um, that are really quite interesting, especially when we start talking about trauma. So MDMA, which is a kind of a stimulant, but we actually call it an empathogen because of its effects or its tendency to open our hearts and make us feel sort Whoa. of more... Did you say empathogen? Correct, like yes. Em- empath? Exactly. That's incredible. Exactly. If we just stopped the podcast right now, I'd be like, that's, <laughs> that's an amazing well, term. Wow. And this speaks to exactly the sort of like frame breaking or frame challenging issue that you raised earlier. Um, be just because of the function, the sort of neurochemical or neurobiological function of MDMA as an empathogen. We like to talk about the medicines here being catalysts, right? So it's not like you just go take a psychedelic and you're suddenly healed, they create certain conditions that might enhance psychotherapy or accelerate psychotherapy or something. But they really, it really makes sense to think of psychedelics as psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. It's really bringing these things together. So I think this is a good start. This is a good place to start. There's, there's a wide range of tools or substances, we could say, variety of interventions. We could work with them in so many different ways. I think it's a helpful, you laid out, um, some definitions on the table. Could we focus then on the, because I'm so interested in it, the empathogens, and could we as a case study talk about MDMA, for example, and and work around trauma? Just as a case study, I'm aware there's many different areas we could focus on, but this might give listeners a sense of what's happening or what's possible around trauma and why this would interact the way it does with MDMA or empathogens. Could, could we talk about that for a sec? One of the things that MDMA does as an empathogen is open our hearts, make us feel very safe, very emotionally, psychologically safe, and very trusting. It acts on the serotonin system, but downstream, it does stimulate the release of oxytocin. So it's a very relational experience. And, you know, if someone is really stuck in all of the kind of downstream consequences of experiencing uh, a traumatic event, this safety and courage that one gets from this oxytocin release 
and the sense of connection and relation to themselves and the therapist that they're working with really is an outstanding opportunity for processing, for meaning making, and for just kind of releasing whatever is stuck in the nervous system. So MDMA being the catalyst, but the actual therapeutic work happens in the psychotherapy. So that's kind of a first step. I don't know if either of you uh, have anything to add to that. I'll just just weigh in that I personally had an experience, the, the few times I have done MDMA has been similar to what you described, a flood of safety. Yeah. I'm interested in how that, if would either you be able to unpack how that might work with traumatic stress? So we have lower parts of the brainstem, specifically in the limbic system, firing off, basically saying threat is still present. And then I did have the experience that it just, it really lowered the noise of any threat that seemed to be unintegrated in my system. I had never considered that then that would open the door, well, until the last couple of years, that that would open the door for psychiatric work or to do some um, intentional work instead of it just being a state shift. Mm -hmm. So could you, either of you talk about either what's happening neurochemically with that release of the oxytocin and how that might work with trauma or what's happening in a session. And then I think we can bridge this with mindfulness, but what's it look like and how does it go? Mm -hmm. First of all, let me just say, I tend to be reluctant to talk about um, like neuroscience in a context like this. Like, you know, Andrew and I were both in the MAPS training uh, recently. And so... Can you define MAPS for people that don't know? Sorry, yeah. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Science. And they are probably the leading psychedelic organization in the world. Um, they're the ones running the clinical trials to get MDMA-assisted psychotherapy um, approved by the FDA and Health Canada and other bodies um, to be a legal and regulated treatment for trauma, for PTSD. And so they're, they're now training therapists because their phase three trials are looking extremely strong orders of magnitude better than traditional uh, treatments for PTSD. And um, probably alone. within a... Just yeah. to say that alone, that like that's where, wow, that's huge. Yeah. That's massive. Yeah. It can't be yeah. understated how important that is. So yeah, we can talk more about that data because it, it is interesting. Some, you know, some things to really like amplify how awesome it is and some things to maybe mitigate that a little bit. But yeah, so so in that training, they do talk about some of the neurobiology of MDMA and 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 how it and the neurobiology of trauma and how these things kind of fit together. And I have heard things said like, you know, MDMA helps downregulate uh, amygdala activation or something like that, um, which kind of makes sense if you think about people feeling more safe and more and like a little bit more resourced perhaps um, during an MDMA session. But I actually think we don't have any idea what's going on in the brain. And, and the amygdala as like the fear center is just a very convenient metaphor. So I, I kind of prefer to, to kind of hold off on that because I'll sound like a caveman in, a, in five years when people actually figure <laughs> well, out what's going on. Well, I, I'm actually reminded of a key moment in that training that you came for, David, where Willoughby right. was, was citing some studies around mindfulness and its effect on the amygdala, I think. And and then was was challenged, like really then challenged it and kind of flipped it on its head. But it's like, but also it can do this. It can sort of do the opposite. And like, I, I really think that that's, you know, really more accurate way and a better way to, I mean, we could talk about it, but to, to talk about it in kind of these, again, kind of like old paradigm terms where it's like, this is the mechanism and this is the button you press. And when you press A, B happens. 
just kind of misses the misses the useful information that's actually going to help someone navigate through this experience is like what's true for one person may may not be true for another depending on you know for example their trauma history or 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 lack thereof right so what creates safety for one person may create a small amount of safety that then allows a system to then surface something else that's been stuck and all of a sudden they're feeling very unsafe yes. and need support to navigate that experience if they're going to move through it you know well, this, so this this kind of cuts to the heart of the matter. I know I asked a couple of questions earlier, but that you're getting right there, Andrew, around this question of safety. And Willoughby's point from having seen that presentation a couple of times is that the reduction of the size of the amygdala, amygdala activation, that's great on one level. And then if we go too far in one direction, that can actually lead to the blunting of affect and it, it's just unhelpful. So in some ways, it all gets back to this idea that there's some kind of middle ground. That, so I, I, one question I wanted to bring to you both is what are you measuring safety around when it comes to this kind of psychedelic work? I love Joe, what you said about a catalyst. What are you tracking for in your work around when someone might've hit an edge where what they're now experiencing might be more overwhelm as opposed to something that was integratable or the possibility of metabolization? Is there a frame that you can talk about? Are you trying to get us to talk about the window of tolerance? I was because, not. Uh... <laughs> not. I was not. I'm actually genuinely curious. I'm like, I wonder what they're watching for. But the window is a helpful frame. We could talk about it if you want. But it's a great question. I mean, and it come comes up a lot in the in the maps training. So again, the the training that Joe alluded to for for um, MDMA for PTSD. And I'm not sure there's like there's a really satisfying answer where it's like if you see right. this that and the other thing stop, stop. <laughs> if you don't keep going right you know it really it it does it does depend a lot on the relationship between the therapist pair and the uh and the client or the patient intuition in the moment and what what modalities being used and like what experiences have, have they had already um you know is this session so we could we could spend more time on this too but there's you know, a number of preparatory sessions. There are actual dosing experiential sessions. These are these long, you know, six, eight hour experiences with the actual medicine. Then there's integration sessions that follow them. So where is like, where is this, where is this happening? You know, so there, there may be times when, you know, it's appropriate just to rein something in, something is too much. But, and again, this is where, you know, it runs counter to some, uh, more old, old paradigm ways of thinking about keeping things contained. Really, the idea here is to flush stuff to the surface and 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 get it out of, of the system, and then and then kind of then integrate. So that can that can look really messy. That can look a lot like blowing up a window of tolerance, but it's done kind of strategically and and with a, with a lot of care. But it's not it's not a it's not a sure bet. You know what I mean? It's 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 really it's tricky work. This is a really interesting tension, I think, in the field and one that I think Andrew and I kind of like are on opposite sides of to some extent. And you'll hear this in the interview I did with Andrew where, you know, I'm looking for and the media is looking for and, and clients or patients are looking for like, how does this work? What is, you know, uh, how does the treatment work? And when, do, you know, when do I start to feel better? And like, what are what is psychedelic therapy? And there's a sense of like, well, it's, there's so much variability and people have all these different kinds of experiences. And, you know, for some people it's like this and for other people it's like the total opposite and blah, blah, blah. 
I'm, I do think there's some, uh, we can point to some sort of like, um, relatively common trajectory that people can go on. Um, and it is something like, uh, going into, let's say an MDMA assisted psychotherapy, um, treatment or, or study protocol or something, you know, sort of functioning as best they can, coping in various ways, and the nervous system just like doing its best to get through the day. And then the MDMA acting as a catalyst for someone to work through and get unstuck from, you know, a trauma that is, you know, for lack of a better, more scientific term, kind of stuck in the stuck in the nervous system, um, and that part can be very messy. Um, and we can we can talk more about that mechanism. But that on the other side of that, there is a kind of a release, and there is a kind of like just more and deeper meaning made of these experiences, and coming out really free in many ways of the trauma that has been worked out and processed in a way that's that it wasn't before. And the the catalyst, the MDMA is the catalyst was like creating the conditions for the processing to happen and then to release and be free of it. So I do think that there's an arc to it. And what's interesting to speak to the kind of the, the messy side of the argument in the MAPS protocol, there are three uh, medicine sessions. So it's not like poof, you know, you do this one, mm -hmm. you take the, the medicine and then you do this like super long therapy session and like magically you're cured. It's it's a whole process. And even sometimes three isn't enough. People need more. But that is the trajectory. And I, I sort of feel comfortable defending that to some extent there is a sort of modal trajectory that people go through. Yeah, so... Well, there's so much overlap here, the overlaps between where I've been focused around mindfulness practice in particular. And there's a lot of overlaps with particular themes. For example, this question of avoidance and exposure that the, the point of practice, sometimes people can mishear trauma-informed practice as an attempt to keep everyone safe to the degree that we're pre preventing exposure, but actually at the heart of practice, it's strengthening our capacity to turn and face challenge. So I love what you're both saying in this, this nuanced tension of it's going to be messy, and then at what point does the messiness actually feel like it's unhelpful? So I think that's where we could go a couple different directions, but Joe, you just talked about the conditions. What are the conditions? And when I heard that in my experience with trauma work, if there's enough of a container, which my brother is a lawyer and he's like, what do you mean? What do you mean by container? Like what are right. you talking about? David, we're just, we're holding space. We're holding space, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah my brother, yeah. Holding, what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> yeah. In a container. Like, yeah. In a container, right? <laughs> there is something legit. Like if someone, let's, let's try, I'll try to get practical. Say someone is doing a session with any substance and is experiencing a lot of sympathetic arousal and is they're very mm -hmm. flushed, pupils dilate, a lot of energy in the system. If there's a sense of a boundary on the body, for example, someone has a weighted blanket or feels like they can really mindfully feel the edges of their, their body, there's a way they can tolerate that, the sensations to simply discharge and move through as a, as a practical mm -hmm. example. Yep. Yep. But it gets me to this question of what are the conditions? There's two ways I want to go. One is, could you talk about what do you think are the conditions that support healing and transformation? 
And then where my second one is, where does mindfulness fit into all of this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that there's an interesting point here that I would kind of jump back into, which is like just around the messiness um, and the container. So, you know, on the one hand, we talk about MDMA as creating a sense of safety and even potentially feeling like resource and regulated um, for a client or a participant. But as Andrew said, sometimes when you go in and you disrupt how, you know, the, the doing the best we can kind of like coping that our nervous system is doing, when we disrupt that, you know, things can open up and th people can feel really dysregulated, even though they've just taken MDMA. And I think this is where the relationship with the therapist, and probably not unlike trauma therapy in general, this is where the relationship with the therapist becomes a really important contain, containing function. And, and that relationship is enhanced quite a bit. So people mm -hmm. will feel, um, participants will feel more courageous or, or, or feel safer letting go of their own sense of control or regulation of their, of, of their emotional experience because they know that there's the strong container. Um, and so we should talk about what a container is. And I, for me, that's really about set and setting. So I don't know, Andrew, you want to talk about that or if you want to take it in a different direction. It, it's funny. I, I keep, I'm getting pulled into the, into the, the mindfulness piece, just, just mm. um, because part of the set and setting and, and just defining set and setting for, for your audience um, is really uh, set being uh, referring to the mindset or so the, the actual psychological state or all of the, the mental preparations that may have gone into it and whatever's happening at that sort of emotional level at the time and then setting being the actual being the environment. Environment could be the could include the you know the room, the quality of the lighting, the uh, music, having a having a weighted blanket, for example, or having eye shades, or or all of these kinds of levers that we can that we can use to to mediate the experience. Because um, really, like what what was sort of coming to mind for me as well, um, David, as you're talking, is this idea of like they're wanting to be like movement. Right, they're wanting to to actually where they're like where the where the pain or the problem tends to arise is when there's this like there's this stuckness, right? So if you're sort of constantly if if something is just sort of pushing against the surface and not moving moving around, it's not very it's not very helpful. Um, and actually having objects like a wall to push against or like pillows to scream into or having like those kinds of like reference points in therapy is actually really it's actually really common uh, in MDMA therapy. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Our clinic spaces have walls. <laughs> something we've thought really hard about in the design, so just so everyone knows, yeah, we, no, but we, it's, we, it's, we supply it's, that. It's ex, it's explicit in 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 the maps training, you know, to say to to give that kind to give that kind of instruction, like yes. you know, it can like like push like really to just something as simple as yeah. pushing against a wall or having a you know. The, with the this is interesting. The levers to me about what you're learning. So you both in the maps training or your own work. What you just said, Andrew, of, okay, the, the you know, physical movement, objects, that makes sense. What would you do if in the midst of some kind of session work with a client, there is a level of opening that feels related to trauma? And wh what would happen if, I mean, someone has ingested uh, potentially some a, a substance that then they're on the ride. And so what are the levers that you can work with 
in a very practical way when someone's having a, not just negative, but I'd say a traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this is um, an important part of the prep sessions. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that people feel resourced going into the medicine sessions. There's a, there's a lot of time dedicated to like um, setting expectations, knowing what, you know, I don't know, breathing exercise, grounding exercise, what, what safety outlets are available to people. And is there something I think interesting in how you phrase the question in the sense of like, you know, oh no, you know, I've taken this thing and now I'm on this ride for eight hours and there's no way out of it now. And that, that alone is kind of like panic inducing. Right. Um, and to be honest, we've seen that kind of panic, uh, set in. Um, but in that sense, I wouldn't say it's that different from any other kind of trauma therapy. I wouldn't say the, the MDMA makes a participant more likely or less likely to have a panic attack. Um, uh, so I just think it's a question of prep and having and, and making sure the, the participant feels resourced to work with that difficult, um, you know, mind and body state. Yeah. I mean, they, they would be, the leaders would be really familiar to you, David. I mean, yeah, really, exactly. it's, it's, it's about, it's about training the participant and, um, in terms of how to, how to practice mindfulness and potentially also, especially with, uh, kind of a somatic component. Um, so it's about having that some sort of, sort of sense of reference and, and, you know, reminding them that it's, it's actually to be expected and that as stuff comes up, we're, we are going yeah. to, we're going to turn, we're going to turn towards the experience right. and watch, watch for, watch for resistance yeah. and where there's, re and where there's resistance to really, to, to stay, to stay with it. Right. right. And to, and to and the NVMA actually just, and this is true of, of a number of psychedelics, like they, you know, they give a boost to that um, that ability mm -hmm. we have to, to to create space and to see how much detail and richness there is in in any kind of given moment from a sensory perspective, from an emotional perspective. Then the therapists are there, obviously, to to support that. So, like that's the other real main mm -hmm. lever is that there's someone else there who's regulated, who's going to help who's going to help this person kind of co-regulate, co right? Two. There's actually two people there, which is another very oh, important change. In yeah. the math protocol, there's typically a male and a female therapist. Oh, interesting. So it's gender. That's, yeah. Huh. It's a, I, I do think that's um, partly to um, have a high level of sensitivity around uh, victims of sexual, uh, sexual assault and whatnot. So, it, it, you know, to have two relatively balanced nervous systems in the room to kind of like plug into is a, is a, a really powerful resource. So Andrew just said, you know, these resources or leaves would be really familiar to you, David, like mindfulness, right? And so I, I think there's a really interesting opportunity for conversation here around how mindfulness fits in. Please. I think it's a great, great time to go there. Yeah. Because in some ways, we think about, in fact, this is how it was presented to us at the MAPS training, in a way that I felt could have been a little bit more developed and a little bit more subtle and nuanced, but as if mindfulness is a regulating technique, right? Mm, so you mm -hmm. bring your, your attention to the present moment, you feel your breath or you feel your feet or whatever, you, and you, you pay attention in the present moment, and that can be a regulating kind of exercise for somebody. But we all know mindfulness is much 
more complex and and um, multidimensional than that. And sometimes, stay, you know, having the courage to stay with something really uncomfortable is not regulating at all. It's actually right. diving in, and 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 we would have mindfulness as a tool for sustaining attention, for bringing curiosity and interest, for trusting. Uh, the unfolding of experience, and the, I think these are underappreciated elements of what a mindfulness practice brings for us in psychedelic experiences. Sometimes this is great because sometimes I think there can be the overlay of assuming because of mindfulness-based stress reduction and how prominent MBSR remains. That's just been a, it's been coupled in many ways that mindfulness is a stress reduction tool and technique in that way. So yes, it has regulating benefits, but to your point, it could go in many different directions. And I imagine from what you're both saying, it could actually open at some points when you're being mindful of, of a moment in a session or of a, an experience that it isn't necessarily regulating at all. So, you know, to just to counter this perspective that like trauma therapy is necessarily going to be really difficult itself, although it, you know, it, it can be, um, there is a lot of, um, a lot of evidence and a lot of an accounts of folks, you know, on MDMA, having a, having an experience of safety or having an awareness of their body or of their, or of their breath. That is, that it is almost as if for the first time I've heard, I've heard, um, folks on MDMA, like take, take very, very deep, regulating breaths and be like, that is the first time, like, I feel like I've ever really taken a breath, like a real breath to the, to the, to the depth of which I'm capable of. And it's not, it's not, not real, right? It's not that this is a, a, an externally, um, sort of constructed or fabricated experience. It's that this, like these conditions have removed of like a veil or have removed certain kinds of obscurations or layers that has allowed someone to tap into something that is there and real. And then that experience then becomes something that they can hold on to and refer to, even as the layers, you know, get get put back on, even as, you know, you get back into your everyday life or uh, exposed to other triggers, you know, and like these things don't necessarily go away. And that could be, a, you know, an interesting segue to talk about integration. Um, but having, having that experience itself as something to, to sort of point to and hold on to can, can then be something to work with in this sort of con- constructive, constructive way, rather than trying to get like work out the negative thing or fix the broken thing. It's, it's also, it's also nurturing the healthy, nurturing the healthy thing. Underneath. Oh, there's so much here. I, I could talk to you both for like four hours. <laughs> this raises a question that I wanted to ask both of you. I'm staying at a friend's house right now, and there's a book here by Ram Das, who's not, I, I know something of Ram Das, but there's an interview in this book where he's talking about LSD therapy or LSD sessions. And someone had asked a question of basically, Andrew, to your point, like, what's this path with LSD? Do I just have to keep coming back to the well, so to speak? And, and, Ram's quote, as I read it, was, uh, it's like once you get the call, you need to hang up the phone and go back to a different practice. And so what you just said, Andrew, would be challenging for me of thinking that it is something intrinsic inside of me that I can also return to. And I'd be in this questionable, what practices would I need to be in? But with trauma, what I love what you're saying is 
when people get that reference point of a full breath or the absence of fear or even the reminder of the cycle of inhaling and exhaling or sympathetic and parasympathetic arousal, it is deep for that person and it's it becomes a powerful reference point. But I can see it going both ways where at one point someone goes, oh, I have to go back now to this substance in order to, I just have to keep going back and eventually I'll stay open versus, oh, maybe I have to be now, as you just said, Andrew, like there's different practices or different ways in. So I'm not even sure what my question is here, but I think this is the integration point is what do you both see as supportive of integrating these opening experiences in session? Mm -hmm. You know, I can jump in there. Um, I think one of the extremely interesting um, early attempts at uh, explaining the mechanisms of action for a psychedelic treatment um, is the the notion that uh, psychedelics, I believe this is the case for MDMA, um, certainly well known to be the case for um, ketamine, that these, these molecules create uh, neuroplasticity. They open this neuroplastic window. And sometimes uh, we think about that as um, like all, like literally physically uh, new connectivity arising between uh, structures in the brain in a very significant way and demonstrated in brain imaging work. Um, it might be actually more molecular or something, but basically creating this opportunity for new learning. Okay. And sometimes I think about it like, you know, you just got married or you just got a promotion at work or you just had your first kid or you just graduated from high school, like very significant, meaningful moment in your life. And everything's new and everything is exciting. And you, you're sort of like your identity gets this weird upgrade and now you're a married person or now you're a dad or a mom or something. And there's a, an important shift in how you uh, relate to the world and how you understand yourself. I think that there's that, that those are neuroplastic windows as well. And so in, let's say an MDMA session, you have this eight hour thing, the, the neuroplastic window is probably open for a couple of days or something like that. You have these really intense experiences, you feel the deep breath and it's not just like feeling a deep breath on any other day. It's like, whoa, I understand what was holding my, you know, mm -hmm. that tension that was holding it back and what emotions and thoughts that's associated with and, and how I might get to a place where, you know, I could let go of that thought or feel into that emotion or, or um, just work through these things in a way and come back here. And there's something about that um, brain state that allows those insights and learning experiences to stick. This is what right? my understanding of uh, Ellen Langer's original definition yes. of mindfulness and education yeah, is it's cool. what you're naming of that level of like curiosity, open, new perspective taking, not just a stress reduction technique. So it gets to a reminder for me of, of her work. So, you know, a super interesting piece here that we, you know, we could take a bit of a deeper dive into that actually connects the research on mindfulness and psychedelics that, again, I hope it's not just a metaphor that there's actually neuroscientific truth to it, but both, there, you know, there's a relatively long literature now on how meditation tends to downregulate the default mode network, right? And so might think of that as softening or letting go of the ego or the self that is widely... Um, discussed in in Buddhist psychology, 
And the same findings um, are de- have been demonstrated with psychedelic experiences. Um, and when we talk about like ego dissolution or, you know, just uh, unity experiences where we feel at one with nature or whatever, those tend to be associated with downregulation of the default mode network. Well, I mean, sort of similar to our, our sort of previous conversation about, uh, about sort of the amygdala that that can happen, but that at certain, at certain doses, like the default mode network is also used for like rumination and can be really helpful for problem solving. And that what the psychedelic experience is really doing is creating a better connection between the default mode network. And then there's the other, I think it's the central sort of more cognitive, uh, network that's more focused on sort of the external world. And then the salience, the salience network, which is like where the attention and importance is. And it's not that it's turning one off and turning the other on is that it's creating more of a, of an sort of an integrated flow, um, between the systems so that you're paying attention to the right thing at the, at the right time. Right. So it's again, this idea that like all of these systems or all these parts are kind of important. It's just that, are they like, how are they configured? And has there been, you know, a traumatic, a traumatic experience that's kind of like, like stalled the system in a certain gear, which, you know, is, you know, and we, you know, teach this in sort of in, in MBSR is like, it's useful at certain, at certain times to be able to get a little more activated and to be able to get a little bit more vigilant and focused. And then there's times when it's not appropriate. And it's really just something about this experience that in these non-ordinary states, that's just, it's loosening that tight system so that, as Joe was saying, there's an opportunity to then reassemble it and wire it. And then what I wanted to say about integration, which has sort of got us on this conversation, David, is like, well, it also really depends on what the goal is, right? What the value is. If we're talking about, I want to be cured from PTSD, great. But if you're also, if you're starting to talk more broadly in terms of about psychedelics or, or meditation or mindfulness, for example, then it becomes really important what the goal of the intention is. Because people may have different, you know, been working to different ends. Like, why, why keep meditating? Why, you know, <laughs> for example. There's something about potentially, if it's the default mode network, great. Or maybe it's just a metaphor. But a loosening up of our, you know, well-worn, um, typical or habitual reactions, as we would say in MBSR. They're, they're, those loosen up a little bit. And that's what I think is happening in this neuroplastic window. It's like all of a sudden, the reactivity that we talk a lot about in MBSR that we're stuck in, that's rigid, suddenly softens and we have an opportunity to respond, right? And in meditation, we sort of like keep working at that. And there's the autobiography in five chapters piece where it's like, you know, we keep coming back to the same kind of reactivity and feeling stuck there, but we keep trying. And then in the chapter two, we walk around the hole or whatever it is. Um, and uh, it's this sort of loosening up that I think is uh, really powerful. And and um, the last thing I'll say is that there's some evidence suggests that psychedelic therapies tend to work best on indications that tend to be characterized by a sense of rigidity. Okay. So people feeling stuck. So like depressive, you know, depression being characterized by these like recurring ruminations and having difficulty breaking out of that. Same thing with anxiety and worry, PTSD being stuck in certain patterns. Addiction is another one. So it's, it's a loosening up of rigid patterns. Um, and so this is, um, it, it fits beautifully with how we think about, um, behavior and, and the issues we get stuck in, in mindfulness programs as well. This is modeling. I want to run this by you both as the model that I realize I've been holding and wanted to bring to you both in terms of the relationship between mindfulness, trauma, and um, uh, psychedelic-assisted 
therapy or session work. Can't wait. So it has to do with what you're both saying around stuckness. And I'd say a big trauma-informed principle would be having deep respect for people's survival strategy, which will often include immobility or a freeze, that mm-hmm. what our nervous systems did to take care of ourselves in a trauma, which often involves some level of freezing or stuckness or immobility, is well-earned. You know, we need to have a level of respect and not just shame people that they should just get unstuck and why just keep meditating, et cetera, et cetera. So, which, here, yeah, go ahead. Which I just interrupt you, which by the way is a, a core tenant of uh, internal family systems or parts, parts work, parts therapy, which is used in MTMA work, which is basically really validating and appreciating and building a relationship with all of the components, you know, we call them parts or, or, um, aspects, uh, of, of an individual that, that have formed over time to help them survive. Right. Like that's that's like essential to actually get, you have to get the whole system on board with the renovation. hundred percent. And that, that, as I understand internal, it's a good reminder. I've been wanting to get someone from internal family systems to talk on the podcast because I think there's so much great overlap that, that, that protector or the part that's protecting the trauma, that's saying, we're going to be frozen. We're not going to be vulnerable here. Uh, It's a factory loaded part that just, it's not like someone Mm -hmm. cognitively said, Oh, that'd be a good idea to lock down here (laughs) or freeze. So I love that, Andrew, that you brought that in. Okay, so we have a stuck person, we'll say stuck, just colloquially, whether it's trauma or just some massive dysregulation. And then coming into meditation, I think a lot of my focus has been, how do you work with that level of, we'll say, stuckness, again, potentially related to trauma, in meditation? And there's some points that mindfulness and meditation will support an opening or can actually lock it back down. And that's just been a big part of my work. But then you're both bringing in what feels like a third component around working with psychedelics, which is creating, as I you've both laid out, a bunch of different potential outcomes that will be person-centered, but it could be um, from, again, what's that word about the the opening of the heart, the empathogen. Empathogen, yeah. Yeah, just there's, there's different medicines or different psychedelics that we could use. So the way I've been thinking about mindfulness in this situation is that sometimes mindfulness, in my experience and also working with people, is the ability to not do. It's the ability to observe in a neutral way and be curious and non-judgmental and say compassionate, but we'll leave that out for the time being. In a trauma session, I'm picturing myself having taken some MDMA and I'm working with a trauma. And Joe, you were just talking about some opening and loosening and the neuroplasticity. Where I've seen the most healing and transformation happen for people is when they don't automatically lock back down because the sensations that they're feeling are too much. It's actually, if they have a semblance of mindfulness, if they have trained a little bit or there's someone else who can just hold that space, they actually don't get in the way. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? That the, so Absolutely. That's, that's a theory I've been having is that the psychedelic properties opening something and then the mindfulness enables someone to not just lock it back down for good reason. How does that, I'm curious what you both think of that, if that holds water or if that's aligned with what you're thinking. Yeah. I mean, like the, I, I mean, that's perfectly in line with the idea that what's, what's causing the problem is, is the, is that resistance, right? 
Mm-hmm. It's it's not it's not the actual uh, traumatic experience itself. It's it's the fact that when the trauma occurred, the system did not know how to process it and shake it off. You know, uh, maybe li- even literally, and then um, the, then as it would then be triggered in in subsequent uh, experiences the there's a there's a really an internal conflict there there's like there's a response that needs to happen and there's a then i'm i'm scared of what's going to happen if I, that response happens there's a threat to, there's an existential threat that like i'm going to die or whatever it is and so then that conflict then disrupts and, and creates all the issues so what we're talking about really is this like having that response like even in, in terms of a um we're talking about like a corrective almost trauma response, right? Where there's, there is an opportunity created to actually do the thing that the system needed to do when the trauma, when the trauma occurred. And that can be, that can be very narrative. You see this where, where someone is like a, a sort of a tragic or violent death occurred close to them and they weren't able to grieve properly in the moment because of the environment, for example. And then folks will actually, you know, relive a proper grieving experience and 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 correct that so so then responds i mean absolutely that's Mm. that's that's what's going on or that's what i think that's what we're kind of um going going for Mm. you know Mm -hmm. you know one thing that's very present in the maps protocol and the maps training is this notion of the inner healing intelligence I, i think andrew may have brought that up earlier but one of the metaphors we use to articulate that is if you break your arm um, and you go to the emergency room, it's not like the doctor there sort of stitches it back together or something. Um, what the doctor does is set the bone so that it's straight um, and puts it in a cast and sets the conditions for healing. And the body does the rest. Okay. So it's basically removing all the obstacles to healing that fracture. And the body really knows what to do. And the same, the same could be said for uh, healing from trauma as well. We have to set the right conditions for the emotional immune system or healing system to do its work. And um, I, I'd actually be curious to hear more of what you said there, David, around like mindfulness, you know, um, playing a certain function there in mm-hmm. the sense of like preventing things from from locking up or something. Could you say more about that? Because there's something that I'm resisting there in the sense of like, well, the psychedelics do this and the mindfulness does that and this does that. It sounds a little mechanical to me and I think it's just a much bigger mess, all, all things considered. I agree, it's totally messy, which is, this is the, seems like the the, the conversation we're in here is how much mess is, <laughs> is, is workable in any moment. And uh-huh. so I'll give you an example. I got really curious in my trauma training of what is keeping the stuckness, Andrew, that Mm -hmm. you just spoke to, uh, the shaking, for example. Quick story, a teacher of mine described seeing a family crossing a road uh, in San Francisco and a car went through a red light and almost hit the family and the, the parent had to pull the child back onto the sidewalk. And this teacher was watching and said, the child started to cry. It was a pretty intense experience. And then the parent came in or the caregiver and said, stop, I need you to stop because it was too much, I think, for the caregiver. And so the child, my colleague describes it, kind of locks their jaw up and then moves on. And, you know, painful to watch. Hopefully there was enough resilience in the system, but how different it would have been if, a, if that caregiver had have 
been able to say, wow, that was scary. That shaking that's happening is okay. Just come over here to the grass and you're just going to let that happen. That possibility that, you know, that we could have. So I got curious about, well, why would trauma stay locked for so long? It's the mystery of post-traumatic stress to me is that the idea that time heals all wounds is challenged by trauma. And so my understanding from from my study was it's often the fear of that level of emotion or sensation that's unintegrated that keeps us locking down. Andrew, you said it was resistance, but some level of inherent, like too much. This is too much. I can't handle it. I have a life that I have to continue with. And so what about the mindfulness piece, Joe, was the people who I've seen take the biggest steps in their trauma work are often those that in a moment of opening, in a moment of intense activation, they don't immediately lock onto it, have a narrative about it, and then stuff it down. And and so it seems to be that quality of mindful awareness that says, okay, there's a big experience here, but I, I can also stay present and somewhat regulated or even just observing it and know that I'm not back in the traumatic experience. So does that answer? That's that's how I'm thinking about it. Not I'm not trying to be too mechanistic, but that's where I've seen it be useful. Yeah, Andrew. I mean, if what you're describing to me is or what comes to mind that's maybe worth pointing out is is it's about feeling it. It's about feeling the thing that they weren't that they weren't able to or allowed to feel. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a, it's when, and I'm, I'm like, when you say, you know, these folks would grab onto the narrative wouldn't be as, as successful. And that's because they're, they're, they're trying to hold onto it in a place or they're trying to work with it in a place that it doesn't live. Like it doesn't live necessarily in story, right? It lives, it lives in the body. And the more time that's gone on, the more automatic it's become, the more ingrained in the system, um, the harder it is to then, the harder it is to then access using those using those tools. So I think this is another place where I think there's a misconception around mindfulness because uh, um, you know it uses the word mind and we think about it as this pursuit that this sort of like cognitive pursuit, but really it's it's not. It's a it's a it's a practice of the of the body, right? As much as as much as anything, and it's about like letting go of some of that really cognitive sort of top-down way of trying to access our experience and really letting the letting the feeling come up but if the problem is that the feeling that was then repressed right like there's this instinctual reaction of the tears or the the grief or the 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 fear that like wasn't allowed to sort of run its course either because it wasn't was never modeled, like wasn't modeled for us, or it was like interrupted, or the load was just too big, then of course, yeah, over time, other other triggers are just going to then, you, you didn't do it in that moment. So like that, everything else just get laid, gets laid on top of it, you know? So then it, you'd end up talking about both index traumas and then, and then additional traumas. It all, it all kind of compounds, but at a certain point it does, it, it's about just cleaning out that whole, that whole habitual system, which may have been compounding for a really long time but if you can somehow access that old feeling it can also unravel pretty uh, unravel pretty quick but it doesn't look like uh an aha insight moment necessarily Mm. although like that can be there right oftentimes there's going to be there's there's something physical going on too depending on the trauma you know i had an image uh run this by you both of of three lights 
uh, three green lights. And one is at the level, one we could say is at the head, maybe say the prefrontal cortex. One would be the heart getting back to the entheogenic, empathogenic. Are you starting talking about chakras now, David? No, no, I'm not. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Glad we cleared that up. Well, I hope not. I hope it Why doesn't not? sound like this. But check, check it out. So green light, green light, and then let's say a green light in the gut. And that um, if if the green light up top is, we'll, we'll call it mindful awareness, that is that online? Is there a quality of presence? Then is there a quality of, we'll say with the heart, with the um, em, empathic response and then the trauma being evoked andrew you speaking to is the 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 a deep sympathetic response in the nervous system that's been trapped if those three lights are all on at the same moment that seems to be where a lot of magic can happen where i've seen people be in deeply activated responses they're trying to be loving but they're quite flooded and not actually conscious of what's happening so it's not helpful but if there's that quality of the three lights i'm mindful I'm heart-centered here. There's a quality of love and care. And I'm also being activated in my trauma. Things can move in a in a pretty deep yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. And then, of course, if you're taking psychedelics, there's also 70,000 other green lights from four different dimensions and the walls are melting. So <laughs> right. it, it gets complicated. Right but uh, yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> I'm hold. actually just... Hold on, Joe. The Bardo instructions—they say don't get distracted <laughs> by the other the other colorful lights and and stick with the stick with the bright, clear light that that may seem overwhelming, <laughs> but which is the yeah. doorway to enlightenment. Unless you want to get re- yeah. reborn into a suffering you know, jo- human body. <laughs> jokes aside, there, um, it's it's there is something here around um, that it, it it is kind of a weird experience right? It's like, okay, you know, we're doing this study. We think we have a new medicine that's going to help you through PTSD. You're going to lie in bed for eight hours and there's going to be two therapists staring at you the whole time. We think it's good to listen to music and turn your attention inward. Weird things might happen. Your heart might beat fast. You might experience, you know, different things. And it's just like, what am I getting myself into here? Right, totally. Right? And so, you know, back to this being a little messy, um, all kinds of stuff. even, Even if you didn't, even if you gave a placebo, it's just like two therapists, eight hours. We did like three 90-minute preparation sessions to prepare you for this really weird thing. You spent the whole day and then we're going to talk about it again. Then just that is a kind of a trip or, or an arc or an adventure in and of itself. That's for sure, for sure. Yeah. And then we're, we, in the middle of all that stuff, we're trying to find you know, this inner healing intelligence or this trajectory or this processing action that we've been talking about. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot going on. And, um, you know, it, I think there's something about doing it three times or more because you can just kind of settle into a bit of a routine and you have a familiarity with the compound and what it does to your body and this kind of stuff. Um, so it's very complex. And, um, you know, I think, Therapists need to be well trained, and and the protocol needs to be well developed, and 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 the participants, the clients need to, you know, uh, feel safe, just like going on the whole ride. Yeah, yeah. I have this. I have one more question for you about that. The focused piece. Are are you in sessions generally um, heading in with the intention of working with a trauma? Or mm. is it more, and I'm thinking here in mindfulness, the distinction between focused awareness and open monitoring, where open monitoring, we're going to be with whatever comes, focused attention, we're going in. 
Where, what happens around session work? In, in, MDF, in MDFA therapy? It actually, I mean that generally. It could be, we've been, I appreciate we've been focusing on MDMA, but mm-hmm. it could also mm-hmm. be in any others. Is there like, we're going to work with this PTSD or is it more uh, just let's see what happens? So in, in MDMA, the MDMA PTSD protocol, there is a, there is a, a sense of trying to identify like an, an index trauma, but also, but not to the point of being fixated on it. Um, you Can you define create... Andrew index trauma? I had, that's a new term for me. An index trauma being like, the main, the root trauma, the main, the main, uh-huh. Uh-huh. the main trauma, like what, what, what may be identified as the potential source. I mean, in, and in, and in these cases, um, especially I think in the, in the research, although I, you know, not heavily in, in, uh, aware involved in sort of like that screening or, or intake, but there is, you know, there's a, a major, often a major event that can be identified that's sort of being worked with, but there's also a sense of, um, being aware of the fact that there may be other traumas that are sort of related related to the index trauma, and really a more broadly the sense that it's it's actually all of this stuff is connected, and it's about the whole it's about the whole system as well. Um, so that uh, actually in session um, there there's there's a sense of you know you might want to equate it to an open awareness of like being like okay well let's see let's see what comes up. You're not going to direct you're not going to direct the the client or patient necessarily towards something if it's if it's not what's coming up. There may be prompting at various times if the therapist intuitively feels like okay this could be a good opening to to remind them of intentions that they had coming into the into the practice, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, you wanted to address this. It, would that be time to you know oh, think cool. about or explore that? But really, you're following you're sort of following the the natural sort of course um, of of the experience as it arises. It's not direct exposure work. Um, mm-hmm. Thinking of Edna Foa's work, so you're not saying we're going to go purposely. Okay, that's interesting. Good to know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an interesting. There's sort of layers to it in the medicine sessions. Um, it's really sort of like client directed or inner directed therapy so we really it's really um following the participants lead um so there's very little direction from the therapists but contextually and this is again where sort of set and setting uh, come in um the whole treatment is about the trauma and um or the post traumatic stress or whatever and so there is a, you know a general sense or expectation that it's going to come up and we hope it does um, and all that is sort of um, worked through in the prep sessions and integration sessions. So it's a bit of a mix, I'd say. But there's no deliberate focusing on processing a specific memory or something. There's there's one other thing I'd want to say to that, which, you know, it hasn't come up. And um, uh, I don't know to what extent this is sort of part of um, the conversation here on, on this podcast or your thinking, David, but just increasingly the sense that, you know, various kinds of mental health issues are just are different um, manifestations or different faces for for trauma, right? We're talking about PTSD as being a particularly sort of like complex cluster of symptoms that someone who's uh, experienced a traumatic event um, is experiencing, but lots of lots of evidence that addiction, that depression, anxiety um, are just different different responses, um, different responses to trauma, right? And that sort of that you know. Really, what you're what you're working with is wherever someone is at, whatever they're coming to the whatever they're coming to the table with, wanting to address in their in their lives. But you may find as you get get through this work and and go with them on this pace and help them 
really turn towards their experience and turn on the turn on the heart and the and the gut as well as the brain and reconnect them to that that what comes what comes up is is some kind of um some kind of trauma or some kind of some kind of stuck some kind of stuck response to a trauma right it's not the actual thing it's De- the, definitely the response definitely. yeah it resonates with most of the trainings that i do at the end people that came thinking that it was trauma out there so to speak they end up saying this seems like it's really for everyone without watering down the integrity of the term trauma saying that there's there's deep learning for all of us here so yeah that that really resonates i have a thought to land our plane um, as a way, or to start steering into the descent, uh, as a prompt for you both that you could just wax on for a little bit. I wonder if you could just talk about the meaning of life for the next. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching. Uh, do you know Lex Friedman? Do you know him, podcaster? Yeah. He, uh, you might like him, Andrew. He ends often his interviews by just saying, "I'm just going to end here." But what do you think is the point of all this? Uh, it's, it's such a great question. But no. But but seriously. Yeah. Could you vision for us, I really, I respect you both so much being at the forefront. I've seen you now, we've known each other for a couple of years. I keep seeing you right at the edge of the wave that is continuing to crash. Um, and could either of you... I'm not sure about that metaphor, but... I, I mean, that is a... Mean. <laughs> <laughs> I meant it as a compliment. The wave of innovation, that's what I meant. <laughs> could you... Could you could you just talk for a few minutes about it's five years from now, or it's even ten or fifteen, and the trials have gone through. There's been major cultural shifts around the use of different psychedelics. It's much more mainstream. I was even thinking of you know someone in my life who's passing away, like that they would have access to MDMA sessions for the fear they're facing around death. Like if if it was if it went how you hope it goes. And we're talking five, 10 years from now. Can you just talk about that? What's either your hopes or what do you think is possible? Well, first thing I want to say is deflect the the praise a little bit because I don't feel like I'm in the forefront necessarily of the... uh, of this of this space there are a lot of folks who have been working really hard for a while and actually the, the actually the question that you you just asked which is one that i was uh i heard rick doblin asked recently um as well and that just sort of made me think of him and the work he's been doing since like the 80s trying to get trying to get mdma um mm-hmm. you know uh made legal for 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 therapy but um but thanks nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the vision, honestly, uh, Joe and I talked a, a little bit about this. I think on the, the that integration podcast we did. But I, I, to me, it comes down to to access. Like all of this stuff is great um, if it works, but if you know, if it's not accessible um, for folks that need it, like what good? What good is it? And uh, I think that. Really, what we're going to see happen is, uh, you know, the, the medical the medical model will continue to advance, and and hopefully the, the the systems around that medical model, you know, insurance and then bigger public health systems in general, and and like um, mental health, etc., will will also continue to transform so that people can access it more easily. I mean, folks in in the U.S. can't, you know have a hard enough time accessing accessing healthcare period mental health care is not part of our public system in Canada so and these are these are complex longer term um, 
um, interventions. That so it's it's not just a it's not just a done deal in terms of like how is someone really going to benefit from this. I'd love to see mental health care be part of a, a public health care um, pro- like. Uh, program that's accessible to everybody, um, you know. So you really start to get, you really start talking about bigger systemic stuff very quickly when you ask those kinds of questions. At the same time, you know, there's a lot happening then in um, uh, both. I, I don't know. I'm hesitant to say the underground because I think that kind of dis- disparages all of the kind of the work that's just happening um, uh, in a in a just more decriminalized way, in a, in a less regulated way, where people are just like, they're accessing, they're, they're using psilocybin because they can get access, they can get access to it and because it's safe and, um, and because there are increasingly good resources out there and good education around, around how to sort of do this work and really just change the way we think about, about healing and about, and about caring for ourselves and caring for each other. And it's, it's even without psychedelics, it's like, I think the, the value, the lesson that I'd like to see just like spread more and more is that it's like, it's not all about the head, you know, they're like, yes, it can get a little weird, but like stuff is produced in the heart, stuff is produced like in the gut, you know, and there are these systems that like, that can be reconnected through all kinds of practices that have kind of been ignored for a long time. And it's all about it's also about supporting each other through that. And we didn't talk a lot a lot about it on in today, but I think like the real key is like how to sustain this stuff, and and that that comes back down to relate that comes back down to relationships, you know, and and it comes back down to the values and the frameworks and the the, the environments that people are li- are living in. So in five yes, I'd love to see in five years a totally overhauled healthcare system where people can access this and not have to pay you know thousands and thousands of dollars to. To, to get treatment for it. But I also think realistically, you're going to see more and more just like better education, better peer, like better peer support networks um, and people, people um, accessing substances that they can, they can find themselves. And I think that will probably look, look like psilocybin, but who knows? Mm, that's great. Okay. My turn. Um... Joe's going to bring us back down to earth. <laughs> it's funny because uh, I was thinking that that's how I would normally play off of you, and and in planning my answer, wanted to just make sure that I also got to something more like broad and abstract and interesting, which I think I have. So bear Great. with me here for a second. Um, the the practical piece, and just to echo Andrew's comment about just acknowledging all of the people, including you know, in non Western like. Uh, traditional societies have been using these compounds for for thousands of years, um, uh, and the kind of intellectual property of whom we've been borrowing and perhaps um, appropriating in certain senses. So I think that's a, a part of the history. And then you know we would want to go forward respectfully and uh, with sensitivity around all of those issues. One th- one thing, one area where I do feel like we're on the forefront. Um, is in the sort of scaling piece and it's related to Andrew's accessibility piece. It's like, imagine uh, that we actually are onto something like a profound opportunity, a, a new tool for cultivating well-being and maybe more like peace and harmony and like a profoundly powerful tool. Um, right now, it's, it's in like uh, clinical trials, which is very complex, very expensive. How do we get it out to the world? Who gets to deliver them? Who gets to take psychedelics? Do you need to have like a an indication found in the DSM to get access to psilocybin or MDMA or something? So 
this is something, and, you know, I just sort of landed, feel very privileged to have landed in a place where I, you know, ran a clinic for 10 years and scaled in a really small way, it one-on-one psychotherapy in groups. And now I feel like the whole, my whole career is on psychedelics in the sense that I have to try to find a way with the company that I work for now to bring it to the whole world and to do it in a way, like we said, that's, that's not um, outrageously expensive. So I do find it an incredibly interesting um, project. Uh, I think it in, um, I think where I'd like to go even much sooner than five or 10 years is, is trying to do this in groups, trying to break out a little bit of the box of like one-on-one therapy. In our ketamine program, we have, uh, we invite a support person in, which is uh, someone that the client chooses to be present for the medicine sessions and the therapy sessions. And it's a way to sort of create a bridge from the experience that someone has in a session into the rest of their life. And then even more powerfully, we can do that in groups. And, you know, to again, echo Andrew's point about um, getting out of our head, like this notion that like, oh, we just need to like tweak serotonin here and, and like, you know, do this therapeutic technique over there. And then the person's neurochemical balance will suddenly be fixed. Um, people live and are in their emotional lives are embedded in networks and communities. And the more this can kind of like radiate out from the individual uh, taking the psychedelic compound, I think is uh, offers tremendous potential for healing more broadly. And then, you know, I just interviewed Devin Christie, who's a family doctor for the Mindspace podcast. And her thing is about how psychedelics are going to transform medicine because it's making us much more sensitive to the mind-body connection. Right. And right. right? And so um, wouldn't it be awesome if the psychedelic movement um, in mental health just created much more awareness about somatic problems, pain, um, all the things that our healthcare system is really struggling with. And the last thing I'll say is I've just been like, completely like fascinated and and kind of blown away with this idea that psychedelics uh, create like supercharge our capacity to learn, to have insight into our own uh, behavior, our own emotional life and its impact on ourselves and other people. And man, could you imagine if everyone in the Western world, or I don't know how broad this goes, but who's stuck in some, you know, unhelpful assumptions about how other people are and how other people think and their ideas about COVID or their ideas about the other political party. Um, if we could just all supercharge our capacity to learn and feel for each other, the potential for us to get to a new level of consciousness and live in greater harmony to me is is incredible. Careful there, Joe. It can, it can supercharge other things. It can supercharge in both directions. Oh, <laughs> can you... Amplifier. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way. Can you say more, Andrew? Um, well, uh, uh, this is why, you know, this question around values and, and like what happens in integration and what people are connected to is really, is really important because if what's, if really what these tools are doing is loosening a system that's been too tight then if that if that tightness has been like causing issues that can be really helpful but it also it also you know requires that there's some framework or some context for how the system is going to be rewired after after it's loosened you know and you know there's a long there's a long history of you know cults and um and communities that like have used ecstatic or non-ordinary state practices to just to loosen someone's ideas about the way the world ought to be 
that they used to have because it wasn't serving them. And then, you know, it creates this opening or this neuroplasticity or this opportunity to this get them to 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 double down on something else that seems like that seems like the truth. You know, so I'm thinking of the thinking of the QAnon shaman who was recently sentenced to prison or or whatever. You know, like yeah, it's it's not a it's not just that this it's not just this done deal. That's why the the values around around it become so important too. That's right. So this 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 really does speak to the issue of scaling, though, because if you know, and of course, is it like a bunch of bureaucrats in you know the order of psychologists of Quebec gets to decide which values um, are safe to promote in psychedelic sessions? I'm not convinced it's the right way, but but um, you know, there is some work to do in our society to figure out who gets to hold space or who gets to direct integration uh, and leverage the neuroplasticity. I don't think that's an uh, an unsolvable problem, but I continue to think the potential is there for for major transformation in our world. Well, I don't know if we're landing the plane. I just want to pull it back up into the <laughs> into the air right now. There's I just got to just to stay here for one sec. There's so much here around um th- to get back. We didn't talk about the window, but mm-hmm. Siegel, Dan Siegel talks about really the window was based on this idea of a river of integration, a river between chaos and rigidity. And Joe, to your point, under stress, a system will move towards these binaries, us, them, Mm. just under stress, Mm -hmm. we can't be in the complexity. And so it seems like these, the use of psychedelics can increase complexity and this ability, Joe, as you were just saying, to actually take on someone's different point of view. I've heard of MDMA and empathy studies using virtual reality, where actually mm-hmm. you're getting into the shoes or the really literally the body of someone through VR, and people are having profound experiences around empathy. Yep. And so I'm just so curious where this is all going to go. And Andrew, the point you brought in, I hadn't been thinking about that, but it's true as things get looser. It makes me think of disaster capitalism um, by Naomi Klein, our, our Canadian, someone who's up in Canada, mm-hmm. but her talking about in the moments <laughs> of the opening power will come and that's the disaster capitalism and we'll actually lock down and see the opportunity to impose different systems. So I'm thinking of that. Yeah. Yeah. There are examples much closer to home here in the sense of, you know, a a fairly robust history of, you know, boundary transgressions in psychedelic therapy uh, contexts. So by by people holding the container. Oh, exactly. wow. That's important to flag. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it, it is precisely Andrew's point yeah. that loosen up boundaries and be careful. For better, for where, worse. Right, right, know, right. What, exactly. What you're bringing to that space because with less boundaries, more shit happens. But this piece about carefulness, and this is where if we go too yeah. far in the direction of careful, it's somehow not letting the mess be there. And it's just the therapist trying to contain because they can't tolerate the piece. So I'm, I'm interested in how, I'm sure this, we're just going to stay in conversation about what is care, what well, is safety. Yeah. Andrew. It, it's maybe this is a, a place to land. Um, but, um, or maybe landing isn't the point because I'm sure we could go, <laughs> yeah, <fair> I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure we could go back and forth on this. And there's a, uh, you know, a phrase, a, uh, that Joe and I basically like use all the time that, um, is from the, the Sona Sutra about the, Buddha and the, the musician who wanted the meditation instruction in terms of how to how to use his instrument, and he went and asked him, like, how how do I how should I meditate? You know, and Buddha asked him, like, well, what happens when your strings are too tight? 
And it's like, well, you know, you break a string or it's too high or whatever, you can't do it. And then it's like, well, what happens when you tune your, you know, uh, tune your instrument too loose? It's like, well, you don't get any sound out of this. Well, that's how your meditation practice should be. It should be not too tight, not too loose. And I think every time Joe and I get sort of get get into these weeds and talking about work, like which way to go or whether we're actually talking about doing this work, it's like it's it's finding that middle it's finding that middle path, you know. And that that is it's a and it's a practice. It's that's not it's not a definite answer. It's it's really it's riding that wave and figuring out where it is and and just sticking with it. So like who needs who needs to land the plane? That's great. Keep flying. Turn left. Turn right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that makes to feel, feel where the wind is going you know that's great that's great well yeah, i'm excited to keep, yeah we'll keep we'll keep talking about it if i was if for people that are hearing this and saying great how can i learn more about both your work and also if someone was interested in training can you just give quick we'll link all of this but could you just give a quick what would be your top three places to check out or anything that you want people to know that are inspired <laughs> let's put, go ahead let's Andrew, put you first. Yeah, put yeah, this is a great just speaking of speaking of landing uh my website andrewrose.ca people can go there um and uh affluence the organization that i that i work for um and i'm also still doing still doing some work with with joe at uh at mindspace so that would be on my that would be on my list fluence trainings is dot com is the other one and yeah mindspace well-being which i'm sure would be one of joe's references as well that probably covers it. I'll link that. And people and maps. Should people check out maps? Would you recommend? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll, yeah, I'll I mean, if it, you know, certainly if there's more more interest in terms of the the MDMA therapy for for PTSD, there's like just a ton of a ton of information about their whole sort of project and path over the last thirty years. Yeah. So actually, the first place I'll direct people is the mindspacepodcast.com, yes, where check it you out. were a guest. David. I was. That's right. I, I plugged. I plugged my interview with Andrew, but you were like the second or third guest on the MySpace podcast when we talked about, about trauma-sensitive mindfulness. Yeah. So um, probably the best interview you've ever done, if I if I could say. Um, just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank um, you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we do talk a lot about... Um, you know, psychedelics and mindfulness and well-being and this sort of stuff more generally. Um, so yeah, I'm still a, a director at uh, Mindspace, mindspaceoldbeing.com. And I work at Numinous now, numinous.com. This is a, a psychedelics company that's um, innovating on um, drug development and uh, clinical research and uh, like psychedelic treatments and clinics and stuff. So yeah, that's uh, that's where you can find us. Great. I'll link all that on the uh, on the page on the website. Well, friends, this has become a long-form podcast. We uh, We went for quite a while. Thank you both for being here and for your work. And um, let's do it again sometime. Thank you, David. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I want to thank Andrew and Joe for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed this conversation. If you'd like to learn more about either of their work from what you heard in the conversation, I included many links on the podcast page, which you can find on my website. And if you have any suggestions of people that you'd like us to speak with or topics that you'd like us to cover, feel free to write us at support at davidtrelevin.com. If you want to learn more about trauma-sensitive work, you can also check out my website at davidtrelevin.com. We have a free webinar there where you can go a little bit deeper into the topic and see what you think. Thanks again for listening and look forward to talking to you again soon.